0: G'day everybody, welcome to OnBat Radio. Today we're chilling in a park in, in, is it Lilyfield that we're in? Annandale. 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 Do you want to start by saying who you are?
1: Um, my name is Nithya Nagarajan and I am a performance maker, curator and researcher with an interest in movement and body-based practice. Damn.
0: There's a lot in there that we're going to talk about. I'm excited. Uh Do you want to maybe lace? We can ping pong back and forth, and maybe talk abstractly about what is important, and then the work that you're doing that is in response to those things that you think are important. I know where to start.
1: Big question. (laughs) What is important? I feel like that the answer to that has also shifted so deeply and is shifting as True. Um, as we live through COVID-19. Um,
0: I feel like a lot of things we've talked about that you spend a lot of time on is... Um, I guess the often invisible labour that's done by people who are uh, made into a minority within the Australian lens and how those people often are forced to know themselves through the Australian lens and actually they can know themselves without that Australian lens. They can know themselves through their own culture or history or family or bodies. or That's what I've gotten from the outside and maybe I haven't put it very eloquently.
1: I think what is important... Um is informed personally by my politics. Mm. Um, Women's empowerment and rights is very important to me. Um, Being able to talk about systems of oppression is very important. Um, And being able to do that through the arts drives me. Mm. Um, It drives me in all areas of my practice um both as a maker um as a curator um uh, but also as someone who writes about the arts as also as somebody who advocates for it um and somebody who works within the institution that was a conscious choice because those things are important to me and i think there are um institutional systems and structures that are discriminatory Mm. Um, and sometimes the only way that people are framed against this are as oppressor or victim and neither of that completely implicates everybody in the sector but all of us are implicated Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and I'm interested in what we can do by being somebody beyond a bystander,
0: yeah, wow, Ooh, okay, there's some heavy lifting uh, so what can we do, and what <laughs> what and not 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 in general, what are you doing in your practice in, in curating events to happen, and then in also bringing people together so that um dancing and choreography can happen in front of them
1: um curatorially i'm interested in very interested in the aging female body and Mm -hmm. dance um the aging female body from the subcontinent the aging female dancing body from the subcontinent um what it carries um muscle memory um, the embodied wisdom um, the archival knowledge that that body carries um, and the lived experience of being woman in the subcontinent and what um, the tension between moving and living Mm. for those decades bring Um, it's you know there's so much here uh, that we can learn from Australian First Nations practice on listening and archiving and ancestral knowledge and how that's passed down and um, I feel a similar sort of interest in looking back at uh, hereditary practices from the subcontinent um, and what women who have practiced them, their labor, their problematics of caste and class, their lived experience, um, what that brings. Um, I'm also interested curatorially in community. I'm really interested in non-traditional art spaces and in um, non-traditional audiences. Mm. Um, I grew up um, in India Mm. where um, the... Arts are really a way of life. It isn't something that is segregated for the elite. And like we were talking earlier, walking down the street can be an assault on the senses. And I miss that uh, deeply. And I think that's also what I'm interested in in bringing. Uh, And the third thing is, um, within the context of Australia, um, is being able to have, uh, for the South Asian community certainly here um, examples of what their practice can be, where it can go because it doesn't exist here really there has been um, good examples of South Asian artistic practice that have been so marginalized uh, that they're now removed or they exist on such a peripheral fold and are outside of the Australian cultural imagination so the younger generation of practitioners here do not have the exposure to artists that I've had the opportunity to have. Um, and I think it's important for them to encounter that. Mm. Um, and lastly, the expansion of critical discourse. I don't think... Um, to make
0: it more critical or to have more people actually having critical discourse?
1: To have both. Yes. Um, also... Ways of having critical discourse ah, um, and
0: and what it functions to serve yeah yeah
1: it's um, you know um, the there is no cultural commentary in the South Asian space in Australia beyond maybe a handful of people Um, and there is a lot of whitewashing and so the ability to be able to situate practice uh, and talk about it contextually, talk about it technically, talk about it as part of a legacy, uh, all of those things and to do it with generosity.
0: Mm. I'm interested to hear you talk about things that you've... thought or discovered or that have been made apparent to you when you've been thinking about these things but you've been working physically and choreographically
1: so my lived experience and how that translates
0: uh, choreographically mm, and then when you want to delve into these topics uh in a format like dancers in front of people,
1: mm, mm. it's um. Can I backtrack Please. a little?
0: Because <laughs> there's oh. so much that I won't be able to go back and pick up.
1: I might um. Explain some of that lived experience with um, and through the work of two dancers that I wrote about in my PhD, yeah. um, and having whose work I've engaged with deeply because I think it's. talks about that complexity mm-hmm. and those dual strands as being inseparable, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a um, a dancer named Malika Sarabai who really conceives of herself as a storyteller but trained in dance and uses physical vocabulary in her work. And she was here in Australia recently for Asia Topa mm-hmm. um, on a project that we worked on bringing here uh, for a while and in february which is crazy to think now when mobility was actually possible globally yeah. um but she was born to a family where her mother was one of the most famous dancers to have lived in india and her father was a nobel peace prize-winning physicist, and she came from a family of freedom fighters who directly participated on the front line of India's freedom struggle.
0: Wow. Okay, that's a legacy to keep, to upkeep.
1: They're called often the Rockefellers of India. They're <laughs> institution builders. They're also wealthy, wow. you know, so there are class um, matrices at play okay. there. And she, her institution, Dharpana, mm-hmm. it's like a little Slice of heaven on earth is in um, the city of Ahmedabad in Gujarat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Gujarat in 2002, um, India saw the bloodiest riots in what has come to be known as a state sponsored genocide, by where the current prime minister of the country, oh, Modi, yeah. was complicit. Yeah. Um, he was the then chief minister of the state, mm. and um, they say officially around thousand people died, but unofficial numbers are much higher. Mm. Uh, and Muslim women were threatened, killed. There was it was communal violence, and multiple people from Hindu and Muslim communities died. And the Muslim community estimates are higher. Wow. Um, And post these riots, she was the first person to file a public interest litigation against the current prime minister in Supreme Court. Mm. And when she did that, overnight funding for her institution dried up, Mm -hmm. predictably so. Mm. Um, But there was, for a point in time, an arrest warrant in her name saying that what she was doing through her school was sex trafficking. And she had to go into hiding. She was in hiding for one and a half years, Mm. I believe. And in there, she made works. And her first performance coming out Mm. of that was to the police force of that city. Wow. Um, Literally recapping to them what they did to her. Now, this is not necessarily choreographically. It's not doing things that are... Um, deeply playful or um, deconstructing the vocabulary or even being curious with form and functionality Uh, but the reason I recount that story is those two strands her work and her life cannot, there's no way to unstitch them Um, and for her, her dance is is a tool for activism but her so but her dancing body is also the body that's on the front line of mm. protests that mm. is put through hunger that has been forced into hiding so it it becomes this expansive body to mine and draw from uh in ways that inform her practice deeply and wow. situate it and um yeah i Sorry, I've probably veered. Way but, and then
0: topic. you brought her to Australia for a project. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Um but that was besides the point. I okay. think I was actually just talking about that sort of deep intertwining yeah. of lived experience and yeah. um and the moving body. Personally, I think of movement also in a in a that kind of expansive sense. Yeah. Um my foundational training has been in the Indian dance form of Bharatanatyam,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is called a classical dance form, uh, but that is very problematic and contested history. Um, okay. And um, Is there a
0: history that we should know that you want to go into? It's okay if you don't want to go into it. <laughs> There's
1: quite a bit written about it, but I'll okay. give you the digestible chunk version, mm. um, which is that... Um, When you train in this art form, you are told that it is sort of impure, untouched dance from the gods that is thousands of generations Uh old. Um, This could not be further from the truth, obviously. Um, But this art form was a specific reconstruction which came at the cost of displacement of practitioners from a hereditary community of an art form called sadir, uh, uh-huh. which was a temple dancing tradition. Okay. Um, and the temple dancing tradition were, um, was practiced by uh, women called devadasis who were from particular sects of the community yeah. that were deeply matriarchal and matrilineal. Um, so these women, prior to British rule... Were propertied, were educated, and they were married to the deity of a specific temple. Oh, wow. And because they were married to the deity of a specific temple, it allowed them to practice free sexual relationships. Ah. Which, both for Indian nationalists and British orientalists and everyone in between, Mm. was deeply problematic mm-hmm. because the traits they all shared in common was patriarchy wow. um, and so this art form was abolished through a bill that was passed um, and once that happened it was sort of appropriated by the upper caste in india okay. the brahmin caste uh-huh. which is the in the caste hierarchy they're the forward caste, um, and they enjoy deep economic, educational, social privilege in okay. Indian society.
0: For how long? Thousands. Yeah, okay. for... Um, who, who decided that?
1: Um, well, so caste hierarchies are have come out of the Hindu okay. religion, but yeah. it was also deeply um, manipulated by the British to... Right. Uh, establish
0: something that they could division step into in
1: society and who they could see as collaborators and allies and who they could see as beneath them
0: and was there not mm, thousands of years ago also an Aryan migration yeah. that also established themselves at the top of what already was existing and then yes. I guess became naturalised in a way where they weren't seen as an outside force anymore but were at the top of yeah. Okay. yeah so it's complex
1: it is complex Um, and this then was the reconstruction project happened. Okay. Um, and it was, it then became the reconstruction project was spearheaded, um, by someone who is now called the mother of Bharatanatyam Rukmini Devi Arundel. Mm. And she was a Brahmin woman. She was a forward caste woman who actually, um, Just became fascinated by watching Anna Pavlova dance, funnily enough. She was married to a British man. She was well-traveled and then tried to train under Pavlova, who said that you should go back and look at your own traditions. Wow. And so while the Devadasi's plight was that the art form they'd practiced their whole life in this Matrilineal line Mm -hmm. was being prohibited Mm -hmm. legally, Mm -hmm. and they were driven to forms of exploitation to just live. Mm -hmm. Their art form was snatched out of their hands by a very elite sect of society, Mm -hmm. and then went through a deep sanitization process in the name of classicization, and became constructed very much with looking at the and informed by the principles of how ballet is viewed in Western society. Enhance the classicism of the form,
0: and that's what's in your body. Yes. Okay.
1: Uh, and that is what is. It's a rite of passage for many women today okay. in India, both in Indian society and in the diaspora. And it was a, you know, it was an Indian nationalist project. So you're also
0: okay. Then you're um, part of the nation.
1: Or or this reimagining of India as, like, what is Indian identity? There was, like, a nationalist revival during British rule and in the freedom struggle Mm -hmm. that tried to uh, imagine an Indian identity, which was very uncritically also imagined as a Hindu identity when it got to espouse secularism. Yeah. But I think the undoing of those things is what you're seeing in India right now. Um, Wow. So, really, like, all our dancing bodies are implicated in this history. And what do you, what does that mean? And what does then movement coming from that mean with and through your body? Um, These are questions I asked in my PhD and questions I ask um, of practitioners I see. And, um, yeah, so for me, I guess movement is, it's a system of inquiry and... Mm -hmm. It's the first system of inquiry through which I approach anything in life. Um, you know, I was born during the Gulf War and was a refugee baby and then eventually a migrant. So I think movement in its largest sense is has been a theme mm. that has continued throughout my life. And I see movement as um organized effort as political conduit as chaos as counter narrative as construct as deconstruct um so i do think of it in quite an expanded sense of the term um and work i make now looks very different um in form and function to my foundational training
0: should we talk about then how you bring collaborators into making that work Uh, like dancing collaborators like the show that you're talking about that just managed to happen before lockdown (laughs)
1: just the just the sharing of the first development so hopefully there will be a whatever new world we enter into post-lockdown um there'll be space for it there'll be space for it what's the Um, working title sacred grooves for secular spaces so good (laughs) um In terms of bringing on collaborators, so Bharatanatyam, the form I'm trained in, is also a solo dance form. Mm. So I was um, trained as a solo dancer and performed extensively as a solo dancer. And then when I did my PhD on the work, I still trained, but I didn't perform publicly. I made a conscious decision not to for the four years that I was doing my PhD. And then sort of on the other side, really... I'm quite critical of the to be looked atness nature of classical dance. Okay. Um, and wanted to make work um, with collaborators. I inherently believe in a collaborative process and um, don't. Um, yeah, I feel like being bounded by discipline and tradition is actually. To be bound by discipline and tradition, personally, I feel like is to be complicit critically.
0: Mhm, mhm. Uh, and yet, it's what that's the tools that we end up having to work with. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and so bringing on collaborators then becomes a natural way yeah. of working. Uh, yeah. I don't um, necessarily, I guess. Work with a specific set of collaborators
0: I imagine that the each time that tell me if this is wrong because I only know from what I saw of the recent showing but I imagine that it's important that they're all women of colour
1: not always okay. I um I generally like working with the female body, uh, so they're often women. Yeah. Uh, And it is... um, I think women of colour have been indiscriminately marginalised in the scene and sector here. Yeah. um, So I will maybe talk about collaborators in terms of two specific projects I'm currently working on. Perfect. Um, Sacred Groups for Secular Spaces... uh, Really uh, didn't start with a particular group of people in mind. Uh Um, It was um, a work I've been ruminating over for a long time because I have a religious practice. Mm -hmm. Um, I have two religious practices, actually. Um, I uh, grew up Hindu, uh, but I have a Sufi practice. And both practices... Uh, particularly the Sufi practice and the Naqshbandi school of Sufi um, which is where and what my practice is informed by and sort of non-dualism in Tagore's writings etc really look or use the body as a vehicle for accessing a higher consciousness
0: awesome
1: and that was always the only way Like I've said, you know, movement's a system of inquiry. And that's how I've even understood God for me is through the body. Yeah. um, Or higher power or whatever you want to call it. Um, The only taste of that has ever been through the body. Mm. And I have found in... There's so much religious debate in Australia, but it's really cerebral. Every point of talking about it in the news or in society or in vilification... Mm. of a particular religion or even the um, conversations around secularism or what that means, they're all theoretical, they're deeply cerebral um, or they're deeply journalistic. And that's a very superficial engagement and understanding. And I wanted to be able to um, unpack this viscerally. Um, And that's what was the sort of, Motivation for the work and then m pavilion had the call out and i just like non-traditional spaces and i really love m pavilion conceptually as a public space that's free and accessible to all in the heart of the city it's yeah. inviting you can I, chance upon it
0: chancing it that was what i was about to say the fact that you can chance upon it i once did a duet with someone and it was in south bank in brisbane for the same reason Because our audience were not the audience that were going to come. They were the audience that were going to chance upon it and hopefully see themselves in us and stay long enough to get affected and think about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and also
0: the moments that you create, they make everyone zoom in. And then when people get a chance to take a breath, they realize that they're out in the open again. Yeah. And there's no there's no walls in many across many levels yeah
1: yeah and it's you know and you forget you're in the beating heart of a cosmopolitan city Mm. sometimes when you're inside that space Mm -hmm. um anyway there was a call out and i saw that the architect that commissioned for it was glenn merced Mm -hmm. uh, who was also responsible for the australian islamic center in newport uh, which is a contemporary mosque and it's stunning. The architecture of that space is incredible. It really is this sort of new age mosque. It's incredibly modernist. Um, There is a lot of natural light. Uh, It's minimal, but there's color. Um, And I wanted immediately the idea of him constructing that space. There was still no floor plan and I didn't know what it would look like. But the fact that he had also worked very closely with... um, an imam in the design of that space Uh, I thought there was something about the integrity of his practice that would make this idea that I've been ruminating on for a while could be housed within that there was a site specific encounter that seemed to reverberate and so I uh, applied to do this work at sunset without seeing a floor plan (laughs) and of course (laughs) the M Pavilion was nothing like the And why should it be uh, but for as as a maker who was wanting to do a participatory dance project, it proved quite challenging because it was concrete floors, yeah. open air, not going to be conducive to acoustics, all of the things um, but there was something about the integrity of his practice that drew me to it, and I was committed to the truly democratic nature of that site and and something that would be so simple. And inviting that it is, you know, that's what we imagine as a secular space and whether it could hold, um, whether that architecture could hold space for an anatomy of faith. That mm. was the exploration. Um, and then did a lot of research on faith-based practice in Australia.
0: The physicalized parts of faith-based practice or, or Both, all parts all okay.
1: um i sort of went to congregations yeah um i talked with a lot of people across a variety of religious practices um i did a lot of reading mm-hmm. uh immersed myself in poetry went to physicalized practices so a range um and you know i have a background in Ethnography, so I will say I made sure it was ethical, and people's permissions were implicit. I wasn't uh mining from their religion, just no. to be clear <laughs> i
0: I had assumed that what you were doing was exposing yourself to uh to what what would be the word like other worlds and um, taking the responsibility to make sure that you had been exposed to those mm-hmm. other worlds.
1: And, you know, and this world, th- yeah. this contemporary Australia, this this is the mm. Australia we yeah. live in. These yeah. are people in our daily neighborhoods yeah. that we do not see reflected in our artistic practices. And that to me is, it is a problem of exclusion. Mm. Uh, and then the next thing I knew is I wanted to have non-artists, mm. uh, faith-based leaders, uh, be part of this.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: it was conceived in the first iteration as a two-part work.
0: Ah, oh, that's cool. Um,
1: the first being, um, you drop into sound from nothing, and worked with composer Ria Somarjo, who is, who has a deep understanding of the body, mm-hmm. um, herself having dabbled in Bhutto and Kathakali, um, and is a stunning vocalist, um, but is also a multi instrumentalist and makes sound with found objects and non-traditional instruments. Wow. And, um, and there's something about her energy as well um, that holds space very well. Mm. And so worked with her and we kind of, in the first iteration, the first part, you drop into sound from nothing and then the dance kind of happens around you and you're seated through the space at sunset. Um, and the 20 minutes or so of choreography... Um, Culminates with inviting the participants to inviting the audience to participate. The idea being that people then open up their bodies viscerally Mm. to then experience the second part of the evening, Mm -hmm. which was structured as a satsang, which comes from my faith based practice in Hinduism, but in its literal translation means sitting in the company of absolute truth. Wow. And for that, we invited um, three faith-based leaders. Um, uh, imam Noor Warsami, who is Australia's first gay imam. Wow. Um, Pandit Shankar Atreya, who is a second-generation... Biker Hindu priest and Sister Zai Zanda, who would not really classify herself as a faith based leader, okay. uh, but who does a lot of research into um, sort of African historiography and practices that are inform collective spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, And these were the three faith leaders that we invited to hold space in the satsang that was facilitated by Jamie Lewis, Mm -hmm. uh, who's a mutual friend. Yeah, Um,
0: Also just works really hard at keeping the integrity high.
1: And it was quite a deep end to throw someone in, you know, to... Give them yeah. the title of high priestess in the work <laughs> who when they're in conversation with deep faith leaders yeah. who have, like, decades of practice. Wow. Uh, but she came from it, I think, because she's so dramaturgically astute as well, yes. um, from the place of a seeker. Mm. Um, and then their teachings were in three parts. And that was how the evening unfolded. Kay. But that was only... You know, a ten-day development.
0: <laughs> wow, that's a lifetime in Australia.
1: <laughs> so I do, but it was such a privilege to test a work that early yeah. with a real audience.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and now in hindsight, such a privilege to have tested it at all at with all. a live audience. Yeah. Um, and you know, just ah, uh, like. Forty-eight hours before lockdown, it all feels very dramatic in my mind now.
0: It's like the um, the door that's shuttering down, and you roll. And it roll literally was, it and, um,
1: it. and to do that in, I had uh, worded in the copy that it would be a radical congregation of hope, and in hindsight, it feels uh, like a radical wow. congregation of hope. Um, What's
0: the process of working out what the dancers do?
1: So we had a because. I'd invited dancers who are contemporary dancers mm-hmm. um, and then one dancer who had classical training. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the next iteration, there are four dancers. I would like to have two dancers with classical training and, and two contemporary dancers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because...
0: Are there many that have both?
1: Difficult to find in Australia. Yeah, okay. Um some, um, and there are some very good ones, also Australian, who've left Australia oh. from the lack of support here yeah. and who have quite successful careers in Europe. So, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, side whinge, <laughs> um, uh, but I was actually interested in the discomfort that's brought to a rehearsal room by people having different training uh-huh. um, I was also interested in pushing myself as a choreographer yeah. what that would mean to work with their bodies when yeah. I have you know my foundational training is in Bharatanatyam, but I have training in to which is a martial art form and you know dabbled in Bhutto and Five the Rhythms so I have some improvisational training and a toolkit wow. for devising Wow. Okay. Um, and that was kind of the process it was yeah. a very non hierarchical space we mm. set out the intention of the work and then there were bits of Choreography that were inspired by very clear imagery Mm. that I had um, that came to me through the research uh, and other bits that were deeply improvisational where Mm. the um, dancers could come into their own within the structure of the improvisation.
0: Mm. With movement from their own histories and bodies and training. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Um, because it was important too. We were trying to talk about the multiplicity of... You know what faith means in contemporary Australia, so you cannot really set the choreography onto their bodies. It would be a very <laughs> yeah. dishonest thing to do.
0: Yeah, it would mean that all of your efforts had been surface, and all of your uh, all of your questioning and all of your interest so far hadn't really trickled down to the work itself, which is the physical manifestation and how it lives in the bodies themselves. Okay how did you think about their relationships in space as well as uh, not characters and not hierarchies, but kind of... It's my understanding of non-secular spaces, I guess, religious spaces, is that there is... There's a hierarchy, but another word for that would be that there are designations of responsibility to who is going to lead and then how that's going to be passed upon and who can let release themselves into rapture while somebody else holds the congregation together. And I wonder if those things uh, translate it into uh, different people or different dancers having responsibilities at different times.
1: Yes. Um, maybe not quite... In depth enough. Mm. Um, well,
0: ten days. You, I think. You can <laughs> oh just yeah, just and I had breath. the dances
1: itself for five <laughs> of okay. those ten days. <laughs> so it was a get to work uh, right. process, like thirty which, hours.
0: <laughs> once you warm up, and once you have a lunch break. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um. So it really was a, and it felt like this pressure filled moment at the end to have to show it at the time. Though I'm glad I did now. Um, we. Had a series of exercises where also the dancers would have to do things like find a gesture Um, that to them was a hope of who they wanted to be and then we would work with them passing on that gesture to someone else in an act of improvisation we would also pare down that gesture completely to understand its construction. And then we would also teach the gesture to each other in the room until we understood physically how we make that shape, but also energetically how we feel that shape. So in those ways, there were configurations within space I was also interested in um, I- in relationships in a faith-based space that are hierarchical and non hierarchical that are reverential and non reverential that are also to space itself you know a lot of um, in So much religious practice, you weaken the knees and you fall to the earth. It's just so universal. But what does it mean for a dancer to release the rotation of the knee? And what are the possibilities in space that that affords? Um, What is our relationship to gravity and then is resisting? So if you're resisting a belief, what can you do? anti-gravitationally. So looking at those. There were so many tangents and sometimes the dancers had to draw me in line. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, yeah, but that's the joy of being physical, right?
1: Yeah. And because it was punctuated by certain images that I knew I wanted to hit.
0: Ah, where did these come from? That Inspiration. Intuition.
1: um, They're... Well, I guess... um, a lot of the research, but with the specific imagery um, in the first development, it also came from research that I felt comfortable using, drawing on my lived experience, because I have lived experience of that faith-based practice, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Uh, so we looked at um, Sufi whirling, oh, yeah. uh, where, you know, your um, your palm... One faces skyward at a certic- particular degree, and the other faces downward, and your head is tilted ever so slightly, and then you 're rotating in a specific manner mm. and then we tried that out in space and then um, because there were also these beams in, in the space that we were going to do, we then directionally went and then tried to meet that anti clockwise. Mm. Um, And there were things like um, symbols of the the Buddhist lotus symbol, for instance, that we used as a walking pattern um, to walk and then to run and then to meet in the middle. Uh, We, there is a specific, um, and I tried as much as possible to not, create statuesque classical dance imagery but we did use one and it would have been too much of a shame not to having Raina Peterson be one of the dancers who um who is trans who is a trained uh body in the style of Mohini Atam, which is a different form that I, I'm trained that I'm trained in um and we uh choreographed this image together of um and it's one that my mom told me about, so was passed down in oral tradition, uh, of um, of a female sculpture that's sculpting itself.
0: Wow. Wow, I like that.
1: Um, so Raina was in the middle and slowly etching away in classical dance vocabulary at this sculpture that's sculpting itself, while in the background two of the dancers were Sufi whirling one clockwise and the other counterclockwise. Wow! Um, so, so there were this kind of images that yeah. punctured, which which brought the choreography in line because there were so many tangents you could go on. But it's why I want to. I'm so itching to get back mm. into the room to mm-hmm. play. Um, and uh, Ria brought a sound world as well to it, where all of the um, sound came in response to the movement we uh choreographed completely in silence wow. and she was in the rehearsal room and all of the sound came as a response to the movement and you know there are moments in a next development where i would like to see some of the um i wanted to challenge myself choreographically by not having any sound as a crutch, uh, yeah. because particularly coming from quite a rhythmic dance practice, it becomes very easy uh, for music to lead. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to do that, but it would be nice to now play a little bit more. Uh, and in a, in the next development, we, I'd also like to break the part one, part two. And we're looking at the idea of having a sacred dramaturg oh. in the room.
0: Oh, wow. Uh would they also be some kind of, have uh, like a faith background or?
1: We're thinking of having Sister Zai,
0: um,
1: who's doing a lot of research uh, into sort of African spiritual practice, uh, has an arts practice as um, as a poet and a spoken word artist. And so some of that can ebb in and out to if she ends up also Mm. um still be contributing to the work uh but there was dramaturgically there's way to receive messages and have that sort of sensorial space Mm. open in and out of movement Mm. rather than very designated sections um The other work that I'm working on, because I feel like I've talked about this (laughs) (laughs) for so long, Um, but in response to collaborators, I guess is an interesting example too, is uh, I'm in very early stage conversation uh, with theatre maker Liv Satchel, Uh who's Melbourne-based. All my collaborators are Melbourne-based. I've recently moved to Sydney. But I find myself so drawn to the city and also in conversation with Marco uh, Gibbard, who's a sound artist, um, looking at adapting um, a work by an author, Meena Kandasamy. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wrote a book, When I Hit You, is the title of the book. Wow. And uh, it's a portrait of the author as young wife.
0: Where is she based?
1: Um, Currently in the UK. She's an Indian writer. uh, And it is fiction, but it draws on her lived account of uh, being a young wife married to a communist whose poetic and politics were perfect, but who was deeply abusive. I was also in an abusive relationship, and this is where I think all those themes of lived experience and what that...
0: Yeah, what you're talking about, embodied trauma.
1: Um, I was in an abusive relationship for four years in India. And um, dance was my refuge at the time Mm. as well. Um, It's so interesting because while it was my refuge, Bharatanatyam going to training... There are so many psychosexual fantasies that are impinged by this training on a growing woman's mind and body mm-hmm. because you occupy always these very patriarchal tropes of the female, I see. both aesthetically and also in the because car- it's always telling a story, and the story is always of uh, a female pining for her male lover god and every Uh variation of such emotion yeah um what you think is refuge could also be um double the violence okay and this text when i read it it just it's gut-wrenching prose it jumps off the page it's deeply visceral Mm. um and I knew I wanted to adapt it for... I say stage. We don't know yet if it's site or stage. We're in quite early
0: conversation. um, Make it physical. Make it lived in some bodies.
1: Yes. And this is why I'm interested in working on it with a theatre maker because she's a playwright as well Mm. and has a very feminist sensibility Mm. to her work and understands the female body and understands the written word deeply. Mm. Um, And I understand movement and space and trauma um, and what it feels like to be a brown woman going through an abusive situation you know the weight that she carries in the book on her interactions with her mother how hard society will come down on you and the uh, lateral violences of that Um, and so we're in conversation about um Adapting the book and having um multiple chapters to the work, mm-hmm. one being an online repository mm-hmm. uh, where we have conversations with um, um, divorce lawyers um migration agents uh wow. trauma experts wow um, um people who are on the front lines of looking at increased domestic violence during the time of a pandemic
2: Um,
1: and then another being I haven't worked out fully the ethics of this uh, but I see the museum as a violent mechanism Mm -hmm. and looking at an Instagram museum um, to house instruments of confinement and working through, I'm still. It's very early, so it's difficult to tease up working is, through it. Yeah. Um. And then the third part being the the performance. Yeah. Uh, that's adapted from the book. So. Okay. Um, those are the yeah. Those are the two things that I'm working on. But I guess uh, I also bring that up because, um, in response to your uh, question about collaboration, it depends on the project and, and live is white. Uh, but there is a sensitivity mm-hmm. with which she approaches prose. Mm-hmm. And there is a generosity in her rehearsal room. Um, and I was drawn to that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessary. And I'm genuinely like, I just feel like because I'm an advocate for diversity, I shouldn't be boxed into any kind of essentialism and don't feel like I cannot collaborate with in an intercultural context in any way i want to you know
0: (laughs) no no it sounds to me like it's about finding the exact right people yeah that that then you can work together to make what needs to be made yeah yeah
1: um for the instagram museum for example um i'm in conversation with uh ehab who is someone i met on the emerging cultural leaders program at footscray community art center who has a lens based practice and we've worked together on written essays and smaller things before um and her work at the ecl showcase was to um have south sudanese women do self portraits that were then um projected onto the fabric that makes their burqa their, oh wow um in a And it was in a shipping container. And it's talking about... It's really a criticism of how much that ethnographic eye talks about and writes about them Mm -hmm. uh, and photographs them, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, of dress, of religion, of refuge, Mm -hmm. all those things and what it means for them to be taking their own portrait. Um, So I'm, you know, in conversation with her around this idea of this um insta museum so I think the collaborators are one of the maybe the advantages of um having been so mobile and exposed to so many fields is that um you're not um limited in in the options of who you might want to collaborate with
0: no it doesn't sound like there's any limitations (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it also sounds like this is logistically it's a large undertaking, but then also um, I'm interested to know how you will take care of yourself as the person driving the project because of how embodied it is and what support structures you put in place obviously collaborators that are are the, one of the biggest when you're on the clock but then what about when you're not
1: um i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i don't have the answer uh, to that yeah yet
0: maybe maybe this maybe it's it's a weird tell me if this is interesting at all maybe it's like the way that you support yourself is by doing the work?
1: It's, um, you know, I think I'm ready to meet that part of me again. It's a it's a part of me I'd kept closed off for a really long time. Um, and, you know, I was a teenager um, and... It was physical abuse, it was verbal abuse, it was sexual abuse, so it was the triple threat. Um, and I was living alone, um, so I was very vulnerable. Uh, he knew I was living alone. We went to school together. Uh, we had the same friends. Um, in a society where I could not go to the police, Um Because my parents let me pursue a dream and I was living alone, I felt that if I told them I was dating, I would be letting them down. My dad doesn't know till today. Uh, And my mom got me out of the abusive relationship eventually. Um, And, but because of subcontinental societies and stigma around mental health issues and all of that, we didn't, I didn't even go to therapy. After it, you know, after four years of going through daily abuse as a teenager, I didn't even go through to therapy. My And there's a way of talking about these things that are still quite patriarchal in, in India. Uh, I know a lot of people who've been through abusive relationships, which I didn't realize was as weird as it was until I moved. Yeah, I feel like for me, leaving India was an escape from that. And it was one of my biggest drivers to move overseas. And then I ended up going to the UK and living there for a few years before I came here. And um, and I just thought it was my ticket out. And then once I left, I never had to think about it. I don't have to talk about it. I can start afresh and erase that. And weirdly, like, I feel like I have just compartmentalized and locked it away. And I didn't realize until many years later that that's apparently a pretty standard trauma response. Um yeah, and so I feel ready to unearth that and I think it will be difficult, but I also think it's an important part of healing. Um and I also think it's a duty. I think we need to find ways to talk about domestic violence. Uh in ways that tell other brown women it's okay actually just even at a base level to talk about it there's no shame around it Mm -hmm. and you are not going to be stereotyped for the rest of your life in any way and you are not a victim and you are uh, so much more than that and you can get help and you can be free and you will be strong and empowered and have a voice and people will People will look at me now and say that I'm one of the most feminist people that persons they've ever met in their life, and like I want people to know that that can ha- that will happen to you too and there is there is an alternate reality and there is an out and um, that we need to yeah remove the stigma around being able to talk about it yeah um, and to meet it through movement is the way that
0: I was gonna yeah, yeah I was going ask about how to how to physicalize it without reliving it. Um, or how to put it into bodies that haven't personally experienced it, who will then dance it and perform it?
1: We haven't um, decided on casting yet, but I have someone in mind, and she's actually... Um, she is a physical therapist and a psychologist who uses tension in the body. Wow. Um and an actor, wow. of course. As, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and actually an actor for screen much more than stage, but trained for stage. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if we do end up... It would have to be somebody like that. Yes. Um, and and who, um, who is also um, culturally Indian. Um, it would have to be somebody who... Yeah, who in whose body... Um, the interstices of those things meet, Um, the lived experiences of a culture. Yes. Um, Because it's, you know, Mina's account can be read universally, but it is culturally specific. It's also looking at how violence is permeated within this culture Mm. against women that can then be situated in a larger global conversation. But it's also looking at, the complicit forces around her, right? Like it's enacted through this marriage, but the complicit forces around her, you know, the mother that tells you to just go back and deal with it, or that tells you not to air your dirty laundry or a society that tells you that it's a failure. If you walk out now or, you know, so like the, the complicit forces. So somebody needs the cultural cognizance to be able to play that role. Of course, training or experience, um, yeah. On, you know, I I use training in a broad sense, not like when to, neither. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, but someone like the actor that I have in mind has a very deep understanding of how tension is held in the body. That will be the most important thing. I don't need someone dance trained.
0: No. How do you choreograph tension? Because you are the choreographer. How do you tap into that and craft it for a viewer?
1: The one thing that classical dance training does very, very <laughs> well is teach you. Yeah. It's is actually hardcore tension into your DNA. Oh. It's, um, if anything, I think choreographing release, yes. I yes. find much harder than choreographing <laughs> tension. Choreographing tension is bring it on.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: I laugh, but I think it's like, yeah. it's such a... Uh, yeah, because
0: tension makes the form yeah. and form is the way that you continue to sm- smush people into a known shape so that they can continue on the whatever is the, you know, the default.
1: And it's, you know, in um, in Bharatanatyam, um, tension is held deeply... Um, in your hip and girdle, in mm. your lower part of your back. Um, in your in um in your joint, in your ball joints. Um it's held deeply in your neck and shoulder. Mm. Um tension is held in your eyes. Your uh, eyes are asked to stretch and they're trained in a very particular way. Um Tension is held in the muscles of your lip. Um, Tension is held in your shoulder. It's held in your back. So there's choreographing tension. Got this down pat. Yeah, it sounds (laughs) like it. (laughs) Um, And it's, um, I started an initiative last year called arangam learning labs uh with a dancer and choreographer anita ratnam in my hometown in chennai and it's a capacity building incubator for classical dancers in india uh-huh. um, and where they're introduced to um a somatic practice mm-hmm. that actually and we don't um This isn't to enable them to become contemporary dancers. No. Or to move differently or even to um, expand their vocabulary. Yeah. But it's actually to help them. um, It's to help elasticity. In right. their body, right. and if they want to do and go experiment in another form, they're welcome to. Yeah. But it's also to make them better classical dancers.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and the first person we invited to host that lab and facilitate it was Neharika. Wow. Um, Neharika Senapati from here, and um, she did a counter technique mm-hmm. uh, facilitation um, with them, which you know uh, she says motion is lotion. Yes. Something she says all the time, nice. and. Um, that's the opposite of how um, their body, my body, is yeah. trained. Yeah. Um, and the next person that we were meant to have is uh, Yumi, Yumi Umumare, to do a buto facilitation, because looking at anti-aesthetic ah. on highly aestheticized bodies. Yeah. Um. And I draw attention to that because I think that it's something I'm grappling with all the time, actually, how you find space for that elasticity yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. in movement. Um, yeah, but the tension, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what I value from somatic training is that I have a vocabulary to understand what's going on in my body. I remember when I was rebuilding an old... Um, ford mustang with as a father son project and i'd already been through university to learn dancing actually i think i learned how to dance after university but i remember leaning over the bonnet and knowing the names of the muscles that were hurting and like how to adjust so that my spine was stacking rather than tendons being pulled on and thinking that probably my dad isn't thinking the same thing right now (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but we're both in the same physical position, but our way in, and that that's ended that in some ways like every parent's dream that their child has opportunities they didn't have that that was a way that it had become um, manifest
2: mm. in
0: me that i that I was doing now this same labor alongside my father, but I had had the opportunity to more deeply understand it or know the vocabulary around it or something mm. like that. Mm. i didn't tell him i just thought it at the time why not (laughs) i don't know we were i was busy trying to understand what we were trying to do (laughs) (laughs) because there's there's an opportunity cost right with everything you learn there's something else that you're currently not learning Mm. and i recognize the opportunity cost of spending some years learning how to learning that the way that I move is arbitrary and has been trained through habits of the people that I grew up around mm. and that I can choose other ways. Mm. And that that's much quicker to say out loud than it is to physically understand. Mm. <laughs> um, what's your biggest hope for... Because this... this there's some thing that I heard recently that was like there are some games you don't get to play unless you're all in. And it sounds like you're all in. So what's your biggest hope for the for the like the going out on the limb that you are living on for being all in?
1: I'll come back to Malika Sarabaya who I evoked earlier in this yeah. conversation and yeah. who Um, is somebody I look up to deeply. And she said the words, we have treated the arts as the cherry on the cake. Mm. It needs to be the yeast. And it does. It is a vital ingredient of a working society. It absolutely is. And it... And when it rises, it elevates everything with it. Um, it needs to be that. And yeah. that's, that's what I think about artistic practice. It is essential to the core of our existence and yeah. it needs to elevate all of us.
0: Wow. You should do a mic drop.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, uh, it seems like there's endless things to talk about, um, but it's raining. <laughs> 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 which I'm <am I>? like, <laughs> what's the go with that? <laughs> Is there anything that I haven't asked you that that you think that? I mean, I know there's plenty that we haven't covered, but I am like any uh, uh, epiphany or like a little anchoring realization that you keep coming back to when you're working and making and yeah, anything that you like that that you want to leave us with
1: trying to find more stillness.
0: Okay. In the elasticity versus the tension versus the deconstruction versus the not needing to deconstruct <laughs> versus the universality coupled alongside the cultural specificity with the like ongoing upheaval of, of critical discourse. Stillness within all of that. <laughs>
1: Good luck to me. (laughs) Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your work. Work as a verb that you're continuing to do.
1: Thank you for yours.
0: And thanks for talking to us about it.
1: Yeah, it was really... um, It was so lovely to be in conversation, especially because... As a leaving note, I guess the first time that we met is through a mutual friend, mm. and you uh, bringing me homemade soup when I was sick. <laughs> I was
0: just the conduit for the high priestess.
1: <laughs> See, art makes that yeah. kind of world. Mm. That's Amen. the world. Nice. Where it be. Yeah. Wow.
0: Uh, Thanks, Matthew.
1: Thank you.